Hey, church, you can go ahead and grab out your Bible and some notes. Come on, you can probably say it with me at this point. We take notes here at Victory because we believe that God will speak to us in these moments. We can reference those uh, in our spiritual journey as we go. If you prefer technology, you can pull out the Victory Church app. Download that in the App Store or Google Play and have that on your device. We have all the verses, all the fill-in-the-blank versions of the notes if you're a fill-in-the-blank version type of person like me. All right, you can take notes there as well. I took the last couple of Sundays off. Um, I was here, but I was more in like a dream team role, uh, just kind of resting. I think you guys enjoyed it too, because the last two messages were fantastic. They were just incredible uh, the last two weeks. If you missed either Sunday, I encourage you to watch it in the app uh, or on the podcast. Just go back. I highly encourage uh, that you listen to those messages. Just an awesome two-week uh, series there. But I had a chance just to rest. Um, in a normal year during the summer, I would go with my wife and my kids, and we would uh, we'd visit family in Alabama or drive to Florida or to Tennessee. Uh, but it was more of a staycation the last couple of weeks, more of a uh, do stuff around the house and get some things done. Uh, we might still do a quick one or two day uh, thing this week, but I know a lot of you have seen your vacation plans uh, maybe altered or changed a little bit. And I realized as I was thinking about the series, I wanted it to be something that was relevant to our time. And I realized from looking at a lot of your vacations and things that we've done this summer that this is the year of the road trip. Come on, somebody. It just seems to be the year that road trips are more popular for whatever reason. Uh, a lot of different reasons there, but it just seems to be the time to get in the car and go somewhere uh, as opposed to a train or a plane. Uh, but it's typically a time in the summer that we unplug, that we rest, right? We kind of reevaluate some things. And so I wanted our series for the next few weeks uh, to kind of reflect that, to kind of set us up. Uh, for the fall or set us up for the season that we're going into. And so I thought in the year of the road trip, we would take a spiritual road trip for three weeks. And so that's why next week we're going to be talking about how on a road trip, you have to know where you're going. Come on, somebody. You have to know where you're headed to usually, right? Some of you say no. I don't know about you, but I grew up loving long drives. Like I grew up in my own life. I'd like to get in the car, give me a stack of books and a 10-inch TV Velcroed between the seats. And that was my that was my dream trip, right? Just don't bother me. Let me watch movies. Let me read. And I just like to go far. So when I got to college, we went crazy with the road trips. Like we just went nuts. And we were machines. We drove all over the place. I remember I could drive for like three days without having to go to the bathroom. I didn't have to sleep. I didn't have to do anything, right? Like I just, you could, you could find any fast food and drive another 500 miles. No Tums required. No, no anti-acid. I used to think, I used to think, who bought the big pack of Tums, like at Walmart or Costco, right? The anti-acid, like who, is that like a lifetime supply? And then I hit my 30s and I realized that's like a week. That's like, you know, you just down those things like candy. Come on, somebody who's with anybody feeling that today? Just me. All right. That's what we'll go with today. But we were machines and now I can't go three hours without getting tired. Like I can't drive. Like, you, you know what I'm talking about. Like, your eyes start getting blurry. Like, we got to find a hotel, and it's noon. Like, we just got to we gotta pull over, which is good because when I got married, I realized that normal people stop to go to the bathroom and, you know, on road trips, and they get gas and all those fun things. But, man, we just we drive everywhere across. But I thought we would take a road trip together. So next week we'll talk about that you have to know where you're going, and you have to know. And when I was driving in college, but back in my freshman and sophomore year, we had these little fold-out pieces of paper that had squiggly lines on them right, that would tell you where you could go. You had to use a map to get places. And then my junior year, I remember one guy paid for data on his phone and got GPS. And so we invited him on every road trip after that, right? That guy, he could sit front and center with his phone that was like magic to us, that he could tell us where to go. But you got to use your map. And I believe next week we're going to talk about that, that God has given us 
items. God has given us things in this life to direct us and to show us where we should go. And so we're going to talk about that next week. Then in week three, we're going to talk about how the journey isn't sweet because of where you're going. It's sweet because of who's in the car. And so we're going to talk about relationships, and we're going to talk about how you can choose those and pick the right people in your world uh, to have around you. But this weekend, I want to talk about indicators that it may be time for you to go on a vacation. Now, some of you are saying, I'm breathing, so it's time to go on a vacation, right? That's my indicator that I need a vacation. But I want to talk spiritually right now, because I know that life can be incredibly hard and tough during different seasons. I want to talk about the indicators that are warning signs that maybe you need a break. That maybe you need to go on a vacation because I believe there's a rhythm to life. That God created us with this rhythm to life. That God created you with a rhythm, with a purpose and a way to achieve that purpose. But I want to talk about how he's called us to live. I want to show it to you from his word today. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19 if you want to turn in your Bibles. We're going to study a guy called Elijah. And I'm going to set up the story for you before we get to the verse. Just to kind of set up where we are uh, in the story before we get to the passage. Elijah was a prophet for the children of Israel. And that means that he would hear what God was saying and that he would tell it to the children of Israel. So he would hear from God and tell them what God was saying. The problem was Israel wasn't all that interested in hearing what God was saying. They hadn't turned completely away from Yahweh, the one true God. They hadn't turned completely. But when Israel came to the promised land, they began to say to themselves, we need to start to assimilate all of these other gods into our belief system. The theological word for that is syncretism. It means that they started to look out at all these other religions and started to build them into their belief system. And that happens today because they're in the promised land. They actually start to entertain all the other gods. And it's not too dissimilar from what we do. Because I think a lot of times we pray and we seek God and we ask him for a breakthrough or for freedom or for a miracle in our life. And then when God answers so many times, he answers in a season or with a freedom or with a miracle. And so many times we start to worship the things that are a part of that season. We start to set them up as gods in our life. And so the children of Israel are experiencing this. And they said, Yahweh is the God of war, the God of power, the God of the desert. But now that we're in the promised land, we need to start worshiping the gods of this land, which turned out to be Asherah and Baal, if you know those names. And they said, they're the God of of rains and the God of the seasons, the God of fertility and the gods of the weather and the gods of all these things. And so obviously that made God pretty upset. And so Elijah comes on the scene and he says, hey, it's not going to rain until I give the word because God's going to show you that Asherah and Baal don't control the rain. And he said, it's not going to rain in the land until I give the word and until God sends the rain again. He's going to show you who really is God. And so famine sets into the land for years after Elijah gives this word. And so the famine sets in. There's a drought in the land. And all of this, all of this tension, everything builds up into this culmination. It builds up into this showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Because the king of the land is Ahab, the wicked king, and his wife Jezebel. And they have all these false prophets of these false religions. They have 850 of them. And they're looking to kill all of the prophets of God. And so they start to kill them one by one. They start to hunt down the prophets of God. And so Elijah finally comes to a head that Elijah, the one prophet of God, he calls them out. And they have this showdown on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the 850 prophets of Baal. Where the the goal of the showdown was call down fire from heaven. If your God is real, call down fire from heaven to consume the altar. And the prophets of Baal, they go first, 850 of them. And they start dancing around and cutting themselves and singing and dancing and trying to call down fire. And nothing happens. And so Elijah starts talking trash. Elijah starts saying, hey, maybe your God's in the bathroom. Maybe he's, you know, on a long trip. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's deaf. Maybe he's taking a nap. And Elijah just starts talking trash to them, which the next time you watch me play sports, if you hear me 
talking trash, everybody. It is, yes, because I'm competitive and I want to win. That is one thing. But it's also because I am deeply spiritual, all right, everybody? It's because I am very biblical because the Bible says that men of God talk trash. That's just the way that it is, all right? I'm just throwing that out there. That's free, by the way. And so Elijah's talking smack. Nothing's happening for the prophets of Baal. And then it's his turn. And Elijah calls down fire from heaven. You can read it in your Bible in 1 Kings. He calls down fire. God sends it, consumes the altar, the sacrifice, the stone, consumes everything. And revival breaks out in Israel. And the children of Israel are like, yeah, we missed it. Uh, Yahweh, he's the one true God. Yeah, yeah, we believe. And so they chased all 850 prophets of Baal and put them to death. And there's revival that Elijah is leading in the land. And then Elijah prays and God sends rain. And so Elijah's putting in some work here, all right? Elijah is, is doing some, some good things right now. And so he's putting in miracles and moments, and he's leading the nation. And a lot's happening in his life. And then all of a sudden, it takes a turn. And that's where we pick up the story. So he's had all these miracles happen. And we pick up the story in verse 1 of chapter 19. And Ahab told his wife Jezebel what Elijah had done. And that he had killed the prophets. And so Jezebel, and we know she's like the worst chick to ever live. She sent a message to Elijah. Watch this. You killed my prophets. Now I'm going to kill you. I pray that the gods will punish me even more severely if I don't do it by this time tomorrow. And Elijah's response is interesting here. How he responds in verse 3. Elijah was afraid when he got her message. And he ran to the town of Beersheba in Judah. Watch this. He left his servant there. Then he walked another whole day into the desert. Came to a large bush. Sat down in its shade. He begged the Lord, I've had enough. Just let me die. Now, I've set up this whole story for you. Most of you would not have guessed that's what's coming next. This is a little overreaction, right? Can we all agree this morning? It's a little overreaction here on Elijah's part. Because here's a guy that had all this success, and then he has a note from the queen that says, I'd like to kill you. He runs out in the desert, has a pity party under a bush, and wants to give it all up. Wants to end everything. And the truth is, he didn't need to die. He needed a nap, everybody. All right? Elijah needed a nap. Come on, all the parents say amen this morning. Elijah, didn't, he didn't need to die. He needed to go to Disney World. He needed his feet in the sand. He needed something, some kind of break from this. Because the truth is that all of you or most of you feel like maybe your life is upside down. Or maybe like bad things have happened and there's no way that they'll ever be brought right again. Or maybe everything is confused. Maybe everything is not going to get better. And the truth is, you need a break. You need to rest. And I want to show it to you spiritually. I want to show it to you spiritually. You need to unplug sometimes from life that you need a rest. And most of you thought that the quarantine was the rest. That you had four months, right, just to have rest and sleep and sleep all day. But what happened is most of you started doing twice as much work, going in twice as many virtual meetings, going 10 times as fast, trying to do 20 times as much work with the kids swinging from the ceiling fans. And your boss expected you to do twice as much because you're home. And so you're on call all hours of the day in your own house. And then now that you've gotten back to work, everybody expects, well, you had four months to sleep. What have you been doing? How could you possibly be burnt out already? And I want to show you a few things that were happening to Elijah in this passage that I think are applicable to our lives. Things that have happened to him up until this point and things that happened to him in the next few verses that are indicators that maybe it's time to have a Sabbath. Maybe it's time to take a break, time to take a rest, a break from the normal routine. And then we're going to spend the last few moments together talking about what the Bible says that we should do to fix these things in our life. Where we don't get to this place of depletion, this place of giving up, this place of everything is over. All right, first thing, if you're taking notes, first thing that Elijah was in this story is Elijah was tired. He was tired. And there are seasons that all of us get exhausted. I get it. Life is hard. There are demands and there are pressures placed on you. 
There are things from every area and every angle. And that's what happens to Elijah. He was just tired. And if we look at all that he accomplished, all of us would be tired. If you look at everything, he's on the run for years of his life to begin with. Because Ahab knows which prophet it was that called the drought. He knows which prophet it is that said there's not going to be any rain. And so Elijah's life has been in danger for all of the chapters leading up to this. He's been on the run. He's had to find food, find shelter. He's had to hide from the king of the country. And then you have this massive showdown where talk about pressure. Elijah knows, like this is, this is life on the line type of stuff. If fire doesn't come down from heaven, Elijah knows his life is over. Like he knows it's about to end if fire doesn't, if God doesn't answer. Like some of us are scared to pray for people when there are no stakes involved. Elijah knows if I pray this prayer and God doesn't answer, my life is over. He knows that it. So this showdown, this mountaintop experience, and then he prays for rain and rain comes. Like there's incredible miracles happening in Elijah's life. And actually one of my favorite miracles doesn't get talked about a lot happens at the end of chapter 18. After Elijah prays for rain, there's a miracle that happens that maybe sometimes we skip over in the story. But it's fascinating to me because the Bible says that Ahab gets all his horses and his chariots together. So that's like his car. And he's heading back to tell Jezebel what Elijah had done. Watch this in the last version. He's ready to go back. And he says, Elijah tucks his cloak into his belt because all the men wore dresses back then. That's just the way it was. And the power of the Lord came on Elijah. Spirit of the Lord hit that guy and he outran the horses. Like Elijah ran across, how would you like if you were going to lunch today and you look out the window and you see me just like running by like 40 miles an hour, just waving outside. I pray that this would happen, right? I pray the spirit of the Lord would touch me because I hate running. I just, I really do. All right. I just, I'm bad at it. I'm slow. If I could run an eight minute mile nowadays, it would be a miracle of God. All right. I just need God to touch me. I just hate running. If you don't know that, you're probably new to victory. All right. So welcome to victory. My name is Ben and I hate running. I just, I do. It's just not my thing. But our worship pastor, Nick, he loves running. He's good at it, right? He wants all of us to run a 5K. And if the Spirit of the Lord touches me, maybe I'll run a 5K. We'll just see. But it hasn't happened yet. So here's Elijah. He's tired. He's had all these miracles. He's outran horses. He's seen the rain come. He's called fire down from heaven, had the showdown. He's tired. And after doing all of these amazing things, I want you to notice that the devil comes to attack him. And the devil comes to attack us when we're tired. And it's not always when you think it is. Because for Elijah, this was at the height of his spiritual life. This wasn't when everything spiritually was falling apart. This is when everything spiritually was going right. When Jesus fasted and prayed 40 days in the desert, he was at the height of his spiritual. He was at the height of that. And that's when the devil chose to come and try to attack him and take him out of ministry. To attack him in his life. And I think too many of us miss that. Too many of us miss that the devil comes to attack us when we're vulnerable, when we're tired. And just because we're tired, we start to give into the lies. And when we get tired, we become a little touchy. Come on, somebody who have kids, you say that's amen. We get a little sensitive at somebody whose spouses maybe act like kids. That's what we're saying today. He gets conflict in his life. And so Elijah becomes conflicted. He gets tired. He starts to give into the lies of the enemy. And then he becomes conflicted because Jezebel sends him a letter like, hey, I don't like you. I'm trying to kill you. I'm going to come after you. And all of a sudden, these emotions rise up inside of Elijah and he's full of fear. He becomes afraid like this is not a natural reaction, not a natural emotion for a guy who can show down 850 prophets for a guy who can show down 850. And who this is not a wimpy kind of guy. What he should have said is, hey, lady, I get a lot of hate mail, right? I'm a preacher in a country that doesn't love God. You can get in line. It's not really that big of a deal. It's what Elijah should have said, but it's not what he says. Said he gets afraid because he was tired. He overreacts. And I don't know about you, but I, I get this way sometimes in my own life. When I get strung out or I get tired, right, I start to overreact 
emotionally, and little things that normally wouldn't have been a big deal suddenly blow up into something big. Because when we get tired, then we get conflicted, and we let little things grow into big things in our lives. You ever get home from work, and you step on one of your kid's Legos, and that pain shoots from your foot all the way into that nerve center of your brain, right? And your reaction is something like, I'm going to throw away all your toys, I'm going to burn this house down, and I'm going to give you to an orphanage, right? That's the... Now, some of you are thinking that's bad parenting, but inside you're like, thank God somebody else does it too. Somebody else, because it really wasn't that big of a pain, right? Sometimes it was, but it really wasn't that big of a pain. It's not that big of a mess, but we overreact because maybe you just got off that phone call with a family member and you're having some relational strife, or maybe you're at work and the boss is breathing down your neck and you just got home from the worst day ever, or maybe your employees aren't doing what they should be doing. And all of that culminates in your mind and you start to build up. And that Lego was just the breaking point. I think too many of us are living at the breaking point. I think too many of us are living at that place of overreaction. And so all these little things that don't really matter, we become emotional about. We let ourselves explode about it. If you find yourself overreacting, like you're yelling at someone, and while you're yelling, you're thinking, why am I yelling? This isn't really that big of a deal. If you find yourself, chances are you need a Sabbath. Chances are you need a rest, you need a break. What happens oftentimes when we get to that place is then we become isolated. I say become isolated, then we cause ourselves to be isolated. And that's what happened to Elijah, because he's tired, he's not processing things correctly. He's overreacting to different elements of his life. Watch the next thing that he does. He takes the one friend he has left in the world, and he leaves him in the city, and he goes off in the desert alone under a bush and says, I'm tired, I've had enough, I want to quit. He leaves the one friend that he should have been in relationship with. And a lot of times to us, we get isolated. Now, there are times that we are called to solitude as Christians, but solitude and isolation are two totally different concepts. Solitude is what we're called to pursue when we quiet the voice of the world. We disconnect from the world and we listen to the voice of God. Isolation is something that we pursue when we should be in relationship with others, but we start shutting down relationships. We start shutting everyone out of our life because we're tired, we've overreacted, we're emotionally spent. And the one thing that could bring back relationship into our life, we start shutting down. The reality is we start telling ourselves in the midst of all this, like Elijah does. And we're going to study this story. Because Elijah starts telling him stuff, these lies. And we start telling ourselves as well. When we shut down relationships, we start saying everyone is against me. And nobody likes me. And maybe God doesn't even want me. And we start to tell ourselves these lies. And we start to believe them because we're in isolation. And we don't have anyone... To come and to give us that, that, that truth to speak something into our life. And we've gotten ourselves alone in a bush in the desert. And like Elijah, we've gotten out alone. And he leaves the city. He wanders a whole day. And I'm telling you, the Bible is clear that the devil is the author and the father of lies. That his main tool that he uses against us is deception. And the nature of a deception is you don't know that you're deceived. Come on, everybody. That's deep today, right? You, that's deep. But that's the nature of it, right? When you're deceived, you're the last one to know. That's how it works. And so when you don't have friends around you to speak truth into your life, to see your blind spots, to let you know, hey, that's a lie, or hey, there, there are people who love you, or hey, there is someone. When you don't have that around you, you will go crazy. We allow ourselves to get emotionally frazzled, and then the relationships got put in our life that should be rebuilding us, we shut them off. We get isolated. And then one person says something, and we think, oh God, the whole world is against me. Oh God, everybody hates me. We begin to believe the lie that the whole world is attacking, that there's no one we can trust. Elijah reaches this place of isolation. And then we, when we reach this place, just like Elijah, we become hopeless. Jot it down if you're taking notes today. We become spiritually hopeless. 
We start believing the lie that there's no future for me. You start believing the lie. And the devil will come around just at that moment. He'll whisper in your ear just at that moment that nobody loves you. And he'll whisper the lie in your ear. Nobody needs you. That you're not useful anymore. That how could God use you? If you're in this state, he begins to whisper the lie. Because we're in isolation, we've allowed this chain of events to lead us to this place of spiritual hopelessness. We begin to buy into the lie. We begin to let him whisper those things. And we all of a sudden, we start to think the idea, you know what, my family would be better if I didn't come around. And maybe they don't want me to come to the different events. And maybe my church doesn't want me at this thing or that. Or maybe they they just, they don't love me. And if they really knew who I was inside, they wouldn't want me to come around anymore. And so I'll just save them the trouble and stop showing up. And maybe that they just they couldn't treat me the way they treat me if they knew who I really was. And the devil begins to whisper those lies. And some of us have come to the absolute last place where we believe the absolute lie that maybe the world would be better without us. I'm telling you, it's a lie of the devil. He's trying to whisper in your ear because we've let this chain of reactions. We became tired, emotionally spent. And we've come to this place where we're spiritually hopeless. We've got messed up perspectives. We start to get isolated and we start believing the lie and nothing could be further from the truth. The world needed Elijah and the world and your family needs you. And I don't know who I'm speaking to this morning, but I know a whole lot of us have lived at the breaking point. We've let our emotions get out of control. We've let the overreactions get out of control. And we've let the lies start to sink in. I just want to tell you today that God still loves you. That God still wants you. And chances are... Chances are you've gotten to that place because something over the last couple of months or last couple of years, something went wrong. Something brought you to that place, an unhealthy rhythm or a place, and you're just tired. You've embraced some bad perspectives. You made some bad decisions based on that, and it's brought you to an unhealthy place. So we've got to get these things in alignment. We've got to unplug a little bit from these things. We've got to get out of the normal rhythm that we found ourselves trapped in. We've got to seek God and we've got to say, okay, what, what can I do to get it back in alignment? I want to look at some biblical things as we close today that Elijah does, that happens in his life, that God does for him some of these times. I want to look at these things that are, we can embrace in our daily life to get it back in alignment. Verse 5, we'll pick up the story again. First Kings, verse 5, and so he lays down in the shade and he fell asleep. And suddenly an angel woke him up to Elijah and said, get up and eat. And Elijah looked around and by his head was a jar of water and some baked bread. And so he sat up. He ate and he drank, and then he laid down again and went back to sleep. How many say that's my teenager every day of summer, right? He ate, he drank, and he went back to bed. Soon the Lord's angel woke him up again and said, Get up and eat, or else you'll get too tired to travel. And so Elijah sat up, watch this, he ate and he drank the food and the water that made him strong, strong enough to walk 40 more days until he reached the Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, and he spent the night there in a cave. First thing I want you to see as we go through this season of unplugging and detoxing, the first thing that we need to do is we have to change our pace. We have to change our pace. We have to adjust it. We've got to adjust the pace that we're living. And let me just say that seasons of rest are not times that we do as little as possible so that in the hopes that we somehow recharge so we can enter back into the unhealthy rhythm and somehow survive. Say one more time. Seasons of rest are not times in our lives that we do as little as possible so that we can somehow enter back into an unhealthy rhythm and survive. That's not what seasons of rest are about. That's not what God is supposed to, it's not what God supposes for us to be doing during these times of rest. Watch it happen for Elijah. Three components that God brings into his life as we start this story. We start the story of his recovery. Three components that God restored him that brought him out of the bush and headed to the mountain of God. Watch this in the verse. He ate food and he drank water and he rested. 
Now, some of you are leaning in close because you want to know what the spiritual significance is between eating the food and drinking the water. You want to know what the, you want to know what the Hebrew is for eating food and drinking water in this verse? It's eating food and drinking water. Come on, somebody. It's going to be deep this morning. We're going to we're going to get real practical in this thing this morning. Eating food and drinking water. Elijah went to sleep because Elijah needed to sleep. Come on, somebody's got to be with me this morning. Elijah went to sleep because he needs some of you staying up till 2 a.m. in the morning and you're wondering why your 6 a.m. alarm clock doesn't get you up for quiet time with God. Must be a spiritual attack. Must be just just the spiritual attacking me this morning. I just can't. And then that, that snooze button demon comes at 6.04 and 6.08. Come on, somebody. You know, it must be a spiritual thing that's coming against me in this life. You got two minutes to hit traffic. And so forget about a quiet time with God. Forget about breakfast. And so you hit work and around two in the afternoon, you're ready to find a bat to beat everybody in your life. Like step into my office one more time. Come on, step in. And you're thinking, what is wrong with me? It's because the Snickers commercials were right, everybody. Come on. You're not yourself when you don't eat. And I'm not saying Snickers is the answer, right? I'm not saying, but I am saying that unless Elijah does what God asked him to do, what the angel brought to him to do, there's no way he's making it to the mountain of God. There's no way he's walking the 40 days to make it to Mount Sinai. And I don't care how spiritual intentioned you are. If you treat the physical like it doesn't exist, all the spiritual intentions in the world aren't going to help you. And God comes to him and says, Here's, hey, you got to rest, you got to eat, you got you to drink some water, Elijah, because he's got a place to go and it's going to take 40 days to get there. I'm going to set somebody free this morning because all of a sudden after a little nap, a little food and a little water, his whole life changes. Suddenly Elijah was headed to the bush because he thought he wanted to die. And a little food and a little water later. Somebody, somebody say, man, when your spouse starts to, a little food and a little water. And one of these principles that I think we violate the most is this principle of rest. I think the one that we violate the most as Christians who maybe get things a little bit out of alignment is this principle of rest. The Bible tells us in the Ten Commandments to take a Sabbath. To take a Sabbath, to take a day of rest. And I think sometimes we've gotten it twisted what that should look like because the Sabbath means to seize. It's a day of distinction. It means to seize and not seize from everything. Seize from that which provides your income. Seize from that thing that provides your level or your lifestyle. And for all of us, that looks different. I don't know what it looks like in your life to take a Sabbath. All I know is that you need to take one. And so for some of us, that might be emails. For some of us, that might be the, the cell phone attached to your hip surgically. For some of us, that might be laundry. For some of us, it might be whatever it is that you work at. It's a million different things. But see, the devil knows that you would be replenished, that you would actually go further faster with six days if you would just give one day to the Lord. And so he'll come to you in those moments of rest. He'll come to you during those times and he'll tell you, hey, you're slowing down that company that God gave you to build. When you're taking that rest, it'll start to lie. And I'm not talking about a day of distinction where you give a day where you spend the whole day in this church building. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a day that you do those things that replenish you spiritually, that you have time at church, that you have time in devotion with God, that you have time spending with your family, that you date your spouse, that you start to do all these things that replenish yourself, that you put aside work. That this spirit of rest is something that we've thrown to the wayside and we go after all the other theological principles, but we leave this one. That day of rest. And so the devil will come to you, though, and he'll start to bring guilt and condemnation. That, hey, you're not doing what what God gave you to do if you take this day of rest. And when you're playing with your kids, if you don't have that cell phone right next to you, then people can't get their work done. And you're you're not doing what you need to do. And you're not stewarding well what God gave you. And we begin to believe that lie. It is the height of spiritual arrogance to work 24-7. 
Because you are saying, God, you know, I, I know that you gave us these principles that we're supposed to rest. And I know I'm supposed to breathe at some points in my life. But I don't know if you've looked at my schedule, God. I'm actually really important. I'm actually really busy, God. I don't know if you've looked at that. And so I don't think that you can run the universe without me. And so, you know, you just need me seven days a week. Like no one else, God, but you, you do need. So me and God, we're going to make it happen. It is the height of spiritual arrogance to say that. No, that seventh day, that, that time of rest that you give God, that day of distinction says, God, I know everything that I have comes from your gracious hand. I know everything that I've received comes from you, that it's not under my own power. And that I know you put these principles in my life. But the devil will come to us and he'll say, you know, there's, there's this stuff that you're not doing in this moment of rest and this condemnation. I want to tell you, I struggle with this in my own life. We start to whisper these things in your life. We've got to shake that off. Come on, everybody. The dirty laundry will be on the floor. The dirty underwear will be there tomorrow. Come on, that'll preach to somebody. The emails will still be in the inbox. Everything will go all right. The world will still turn tomorrow. We've got to set some things aside and we've got to rest. You've got to get that in your life. Second thing, number two, as we jot it down, is we need a new perspective. Got to get fresh perspective. I love this. Verse 13, back to our story. He's in the cave. And then the voice, the Holy Spirit speaks to him and it says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And I would humbly submit to you today to ask yourself the same question. What am I doing here? And I don't mean physically in this church building. I don't mean at home, wherever it is that you're watching. I mean in life, spiritually. What am I doing here? Do you understand the choices that have brought you to the place that you are? Because there's so many times we need to take a step back and reevaluate. How did I get here? Because you and I have made our decisions and then our decisions have made us. We are the sum total of the choices that we've made in life. Where you are today is the total of your choices. And so you begin to ask yourself, how did I end up alone in the desert or alone in the cave where I'm not supposed to be? What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here out away from all your friends? What are you doing here? And I think sometimes spiritually, emotionally, physically, we have to look at our lives and say, what am I doing here? Do I actually understand the pattern that brought me to this place? Because if I'm in a place of depletion or a place where I'm ready to give it all up, what have I done up to this point? In verse 14, Elijah answers, it's an amazing answer. He answers to God, O Lord God of armies, I have eagerly served you. The Israelites, those people over there, have abandoned your promises, torn down your altars and executed your prophets, and I'm the only one left. And they're trying to take my life. Woe is me, pity party. Please feel sorry for me, God. You should see all the great things that I alone have done for you, oh God. That I alone, he's about to take his life. Watch this. He was about to take his own life back under the bush based on bad information. Because he tells us what's in his mind in this verse. He tells us what he was thinking back in the bush in the desert. Based on bad information, he's pouting. He's feeling sorry for himself in the bush on the backside of the desert. Because he genuinely believes that there's nobody that has his back. He's already forgotten about the fire that came down from heaven. He's forgotten about the 850 prophets, forgotten about the miracles, forgotten about the revival that's broken out in the land. He's forgotten all of that. Remember, you get isolated. We buy into these crazy thoughts. He begins to say that I am the only one that serves God. I'm the only one who does anything right. I'm the only one in Israel. I'm the only one in this entire company that serves the Lord, that loves you, O God. I'm the only one in my neighborhood. They're all a bunch of drunks headed for hell. I am the only one, oh Lord, who serves you. That sound familiar to anybody? Any of your prayers? We start feeling sorry for ourselves. Watch God's response. Watch his response in verse 18. But I still, Elijah, have 7,000 people in Israel. 
whose knees have not knelt to worship Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. God's response to Elijah was wrong, wrong. You're wrong, Elijah. You're feeling sorry for yourself out here in the desert, out here in the cave. You're wrong, Elijah. I have 7,000 people that want to be your friend. 7,000 people, Elijah, that are on our side. 7,000 people that haven't knelt to Baal, not just in the revival. I like how he puts in, they haven't even knelt to Baal throughout all of this. You're wrong, Elijah. You're out here making decisions based on bad information and you're wrong. He's saying, you're not alone. You're not the only one that's here. You're the one who wandered out in the desert. He says, you're not the only one in Israel. Because some of us, I want us to see this verse, because some of us are making bad decisions about our life based on bad information. A whole lot of us are making the wrong decisions about what's next in our life and about what God has planned for us based on bad information. Because we believed a lie because we got into isolation. The whole world's not out to get you. Not everybody in your life is out to get you. Not everybody is after you. The Lord still loves you. God still has a plan for you. God still has a purpose for you. Don't throw it all away based on bad information. Don't throw it all away based on what you perceive to be the truth when the devil's trying to whisper a lie. We've got to change our perspective. We've got to adjust our pace. So ultimately, number three, jot it down as we close today. We need to get a new purpose. We've got to renew our purpose. You become burnt out and discouraged when you forget the why of what you're doing. When you forget the why of what it is that you're doing in this life. Because we all have things that we're called to do. We all have things in the kingdom that we're called to do. But so many, so many times we boil it down to just the what. And we forget the why. So here's Elijah thinking his life is over. First Kings chapter 15. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. And go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, Elijah, anoint Hazael king over Aram. And anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel to succeed you as prophet. He says, get back out of that cave. There's two things I want to say to every person in this church. Whether you're here in the building right now or you're watching online, look in my eyes this morning. God is not finished with your life. God is not finished with your life. I don't care how old you are. Do not buy into the lie that there is nothing left for you to do. And some of you are young and the devil is whispering in your ear that the world would be better without you. That everything has passed you by, that you have nothing to offer. I'm telling you, God has a plan and a purpose for your life. Every single person, God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And it is greater than you could possibly imagine. And if you could catch a glimpse of it, if you would allow God to show it to you, it would sustain you through whatever trial or pain or thing that you walk through. If you could see what God wants to do with your life, the purpose that he has for you, it wouldn't matter what happens in your life. It wouldn't matter what people oppose you. It wouldn't matter if you could just get a glimpse of what God has for you. In Acts chapter 24, the Lord appears to Paul. And he tells him, Paul, you preached my gospel across the world in all the countries. You've, you've spoken my name and you preached Jesus to all of these people. And he said, in the same way that you've done that, Paul, in the same way you preached my gospel around the world, you're going to preach my gospel in Rome. And so Paul caught that vision. Paul had that vision. He knew that without a shadow of a doubt. I'm going to preach the gospel in Rome. And so it didn't matter how many times Paul was beaten. It didn't matter how many times Paul was bitten by a snake. It didn't matter how many people opposed him. It didn't matter how many times he was adrift and shipwrecked at sea. It didn't matter what happened to Paul. He's floating out in the ocean thinking, I could float here another month. I don't care what happens to me. I know I'm going to Rome. God told me I'm going to Rome and I'm going to Rome. If you could catch what Rome is in your life, if you could see what the purpose that God has for you, if you could see that, if you could catch a glimpse of it, it wouldn't matter how many people opposed you. 
wouldn't matter what trial or pain you walk through. It wouldn't matter what happened to you in this life. You say, I'm going to Rome and I know God's not finished with me because I haven't finished the work he gave me to do. I haven't finished the work God gave me to do. And yet there are others of you here today. And you say, I, I went to Rome. I preached the message, man. I called fire down from heaven. I saw the miracles of God. And I feel like it's kind of passed me by. I feel like it's kind of, it's kind of over. And I want you to hear today, your job is not done. Those of you who say, well, I, I preached that message and I saw the miracles of God. And, and now it's kind of my time is over. I want you to know your time is not done. Because this world, this nation cannot be saved by the results of an election, everybody. I don't know if that's news for you, but it can't be saved on the back of an election. Now, that's not saying that I'm cashed out of the political process. I'm just telling you, you can take the best saint who ever lived and make them the president of the country. The whole Old Testament, everybody, is proof that laws don't change the heart. Only Jesus Christ can change the heart. And so there is hope for America, but it's based in the body of Christ. It's based in the gospel of Jesus. And you're not finished until you train the next generation of spiritual giants, of business leaders, of missionaries. That's why the devil is so intent on attacking our schools, because he knows that the hope of the church is in training the next generation. That's how the body of Christ continues to stay strong. It's in the hearts of our children. And so help us if those of you who have done great things for God who have seen the miracles, want to sit back on your laurels and say, my time is finished. It's time for everybody else now. Because you're blind to the truth. Because just like Elijah, it's time to come back out of the cave. Because there are some people to anoint and there's a generation to train. And there are some people to empower. You're called. You're called. And we will never be the church that God has called us to be. Without the generals who have been through it. Battle hardened, who have called fire down from heaven who've seen the miracles of God, who've seen the God of armies, the God who can answer, until those generals come back from that cave and they begin to anoint and pass on that legacy of what they've seen God do. The three names that God lists here, you find them, you study their stories, you find them the most unlikely of places, but Elijah had to come back out of that cave and start to anoint and start to pass on that legacy. Elisha, he's, he's, he's in a field with some oxen. And you see Elijah walk up past that mantle. God's not finished with you. God's got some incredible things to do. As we close today, I just want you to know what you do matters in this life. No matter what stage of life that you're in, what you do matters in this life. What I do matters. And I know sometimes it gets hard. Sometimes we get tired. Sometimes we let our emotions get the best of us. Sometimes we get spiritually hopeless. We get frazzled. But I want you to know today the truth is still the truth, that God still has a plan for you, that your future is not over. It's still intact. That God's purposes can still come to pass in your life. Don't throw it all away because you're basing it on bad information. I want you to know that God still loves you. And the world still needs the light that you bring. Would you bow your heads with me today as we pray? God, I ask you today. I pray for every person in this church, God, physically here and watching online. God, I pray for every person. Every person who's tired. God, every person who's come to the place where they want to give up. 
Every person who's spiritually hopeless, God, I pray for them right now. Lord, give us a renewed sense of purpose. Father, help us when we've, when we've set our pace, Father. It's some way that's displeasing to you. We ask you, God, adjust it. Our schedule, God, the things that we do. Because all we want for our lives is what you have for us. So I pray right now, Father, that you would give us a renewed sense of your purpose. With every head bowed and every eye closed, there are some of you who are here today. And you find yourself far from God. And there's a million ways maybe that you found yourself in this place. Maybe you ran when you were younger or maybe religion has destroyed you. And I just want you to know that religion has lied to you because religion will tell you that all God is is mad at you. That all he wants to do is punish you. But I want you to know that Jesus came that you could be set free. Jesus came so that you could be forgiven of your sins. God wants a relationship with you. That's why it's called good news. And so wherever you are today, if you find yourself spiritually hopeless, and you find yourself like God is a million miles away, I want you to know today that he still wants you and that he's drawing you back and he's calling you. He's calling to your heart. And if you want to have a relationship with him, I want to pray with you today to take that step. I want you to know that I'm not going to have you stand up after the prayer. I'm not trying to single you out. This moment isn't about embarrassing you. It's about connecting you with Jesus. And so if that's you today, I would just want to pray a prayer with you. If you want to make that decision in your heart. And all of God's church, we're going to pray this prayer with you. And I can give you the words, but you've got to say them and you've got to mean them in your own heart. So come on, church, let's pray this. And those of you that want to have that relationship, pray this prayer with us. Say, dear Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I repent. I accept what you did on the cross. And now I make you the Lord of my life. Come live inside of me. Give me purpose. In Jesus' name I pray. Now, Father, I pray for this whole church. God, even those who are following Christ, God, forgive us and we repent. Father, when our lives have lived contrary to your word. And so, Father, today we repent and we bring ourselves back in alignment. We bring ourselves back in alignment with your purpose, with your word. We want to hear your voice, God. God, help us today to find our purpose and find our potential in you. Lord, we say again that we thank you that you use us to spread your kingdom. We thank you that we can be a part of that. And God, we pray, let your presence rest on us. Father, for those of us who feel spiritually hopeless, God, let us come back out of the cave. Let us know that you still have a future and a hope for us. And we thank you for all that you're going to do. We give you all the glory and all the praise. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's church said amen.
and amen. Come on, can we give God praise for what he's done today?